This is Coast to Coast. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Corey Johnson. We're here every day bringing the latest news in the world of business and finance. And the most interesting stories in global technology from Silicon Valley and beyond, powered by our more than 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Coast to Coast on iTunes, SoundCloud, and Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern only on Bloomberg Radio. Intercom just completed its $2.4 billion acquisition of CBS Radio, creating the second largest radio company in the U.S. One disclaimer, we just want to point out that uh, Bloomberg uh, Radio does provide programming uh, to uh, this uh, to CBS Radio. Uh, here to talk about it and the future of the radio business, David Field is president and CEO at Intercom Communications based in Pennsylvania. We find him at the New York Stock Exchange as he gets ready to ring the closing bell. Congratulations uh, on this uh, completion of of the deal. I love it because people for years, I feel like, have been saying radio is dead, and here we all are. Well, thanks so much. It's a pleasure to be here. So uh, as you look at this deal, how does this grow your business? What can you do now that you couldn't have done before the acquisition? Yeah, it's, it's really exciting because we are creating um, a leading American media and entertainment company with the combined uh, assets of these two great companies, which will give us one of the two largest positions in the radio broadcasting industry. We'll reach over 100 million Americans every single week uh, across our outstanding brands in the top 50 markets and our associated digital platforms and live events. We'll be far and away the leader in news radio and sports radio. Uh, we'll be the number two podcaster in the United States. We'll have robust media and uh, um, live events and digital businesses as well. And we have the scale that we've always coveted. And that scale will enable us, we believe, to create a number of interesting new opportunities for growth. And we're doing it on a strong financial platform with an outstanding balance sheet, which will enable us to keep paying a big dividend, uh, buy back our stock, and to be able to drive the further investments, uh, creative investments uh, in the business as we go and you're And you're somewhat unique in, in terms of that balance sheet in, in your industry. Yeah, you know, it's funny. People conflate the challenges that are going on with a couple of our peers with the underlying business, and they miss the fact that radio has an outstanding business model, which generates massive free cash flow. Uh, but like any business, you can only put so much debt on it, and we'll be conservatively levered, uh, which will enable us, as I said before, to be able to pay a nice dividend and continue to uh, look up for opportunities for further growth. David, as we mentioned coming in, Bloomberg Radio provides programming for intercom stations around the country. We see a content battle, I feel like, going on certainly uh, in the visual world, right? And I'm just curious in terms of your pursuit of various kinds of content, what's in demand, where do you see the most growth, and is it getting more expensive to get? No, look, we, we're big believers in premium local content, and the new intercom is the number one company in the country in delivering live, organic, local audio content. Again, the premium content that we think wins, wins the battles going forward. Um, and we'll continue to focus on that with our sports, our news, our local personalities, and so forth. And it's sort of interesting because if you take a look at the audio space today, um, and not everybody sees this, but audio continues to grow, and local radio remains the dominant player in local audio. In fact, even in the most recent cars with all the connected technology, the American public consumes 13 times more local radio than all of the streaming services put together. So that's Pandora, Spotify, Apple, and so forth. So we really like our position, and again, it's that local proprietary premium content that's driving it. Well, it certainly is an interesting time in this business. Uh, last, real quick, podcast business, what kind of numbers are you seeing in terms of uh, hours listened to? 
Well, we're seeing really uh, powerful growth across that spectrum, and we made an investment over the summer uh, in one of the fastest-growing uh, startups, Cadence 13, which, as I mentioned earlier, when you combine that with all of our ongoing podcasting efforts, will make us the number two player in podcasting behind NPR. And we see that as a really additive piece of our business going forward. How do you specifically grow the digital business? Well, it's, you know, we're, it, it's about being integrated, right? Mm. Because we have the, again, 100 million plus Americans tuning in weekly. And for them, it's about delivering great content over the air, engaging them socially, engaging them over our digital platforms and our other pursuits, podcasting, live events. It really all fits together uh, around our really powerful local brands in these top 50 markets. And so we see significant growth ahead of us in all of those areas. Well, the podcast is so interesting. It's, you know, our, our podcast of this show, it's called Coast to Coast on, on iTunes Music Store, and it's, it's had some really great results, uh, but it's, it's a different beast. And I wonder how you see that in terms of the, the advertising side. What, how is the advertiser different uh, for the podcast than it is for terrestrial radio? I don't know if it has to be different. I think that some advertisers have discovered podcasting that are not traditional radio advertisers. Uh, and I think over time we're going to see it's just part of a healthy ecosystem and audio uh, we're seeing more and more advertisers intrigued with audio in its different forms. But at the end of the day, here's a medium that is the number one reach medium in the United States, local radio, reaching 93% of Americans each week. And the, the research shows that the ROI on that, on, on radio advertising, is, is extraordinarily successful. Um, podcasting will fit very nicely into that and just give us yet another, um, a, another way to uh, reach audiences um, with, with a slight difference, but uh, essentially getting you to the same uh, the same end game of successful outcomes for advertisers. You know, if I look at the broader industry, like iHeartRadio, uh, it's the number one radio operator in the country, but it's got tons of debt. If it filed for bankruptcy, David, what would it mean for the radio industry? Well, look, I, I have a lot of respect for that company, and it's not, you know, today's a day for us to talk about Intercom and not, not talk about iHeart. I would say to you that... No, I know, um, but, but, but if we look at the industry overall, you've got to look at the, the overall industry in terms of who's doing well, who's not, and what it means for your business. We're, we are, you know, if you talk about Intercom. Well, look, it's like, it's like the airlines, right? Uh, sometimes airlines have to re restructure themselves financially, but they continue to fly. Um, I think that once some of our peers get past their financial issues and those companies are recapitalized, it's actually a great thing for radio because it gets that distraction out of the way and lets investors and advertisers focus on the core strength of, of what's going on in radio today and, and what it means to listeners and advertisers. All right, we're going to leave it on that note. Thank you so much for your time, David. We really appreciate it. Congratulations on the deal. David Field, President, Chief Executive Officer at Entercom Communications, based in Pennsylvania, ringing the closing bell at the New York Stock Exchange, and that's where we find him. One of our favorites here today, uh, here in the Ninth Real Studios here in San Francisco. Um, we're looking at uh, Anton Schutz sitting across from the Mending Capital Advisors all the way from Rochester, New York, but he comes here to San Francisco, and I'm grateful for that. Uh, not, not much love for Rochester, but, you know. Uh, we're looking at the banking sector, though. And, uh, Anton, uh, I'm curious, you know, there's so much discussion about this tax overhaul, and we still don't know what the bill might look like, but it seems like there are big implications uh, for lending, uh, mortgage lending, and for the banks. How are you, you trying to uh, read the tea leaves here? Sure. Um, I mean, first of all, uh, you know, banks are huge payers of taxes, uh, number one uh, group in the S&P. And that's why they rallied so hard uh, post-election. And then as doubts grew, they, they sold off earlier this year. They've rallied again recently. But, you know, for just from a straight earnings perspective, they make a lot more money in a lower tax environment. Secondly, 
Um, obviously, it's pretty stimulative for a lot of other corporations. So from a lending perspective, uh, in theory, they're going to get more loans. Uh, however, the mortgage deduction is going to be interesting for those doing jumbos. Um, I think at the end of the day, in a stronger economy, it may not have as much impact as, as people think it does. Um, so I'm not as worried about it. And obviously, if I look at my portfolio, I'm not looking at a lot of mortgage lenders in a rising rate environment. Um, I really like uh, traditional commercial banking at this point in time, sensitive to Fed raising rates. And I expect, uh, you know, at least one more rate in a couple weeks and uh, three more hikes uh, next year. And that's enough to make a difference uh, in terms of uh, mortgage business? <clears throat> Oh, yeah. No, I think it would okay. uh, more than offset. The, the general bank, obviously, there's banks that are specific to mortgages that are going to have to make this up somewhere else or their customers are going to have to prosper enough that, you know, they're just not going to be held back uh, from, you know, continuing to do loans. Anton, when you look at the big banks and smaller regionals, which you, you invest in both areas of the market and you've done really well, if you look at your funds, you know, the five-year track record, you're beating pretty much everybody in your categories. What are the trends that you find most interesting and that you think investors should pay attention to? Because it will potentially dramatically affect their businesses going forward. And, and I bring that up with, we're spending so much time talking about the role of technology and machine learning and artificial intelligence and what it will do. And I'm just curious how that plays into your thinking. Well, certainly, um, you know, the, the trends in banking technology is, you know, both potentially a threat, but it's certainly an aid. I mean, the cost of doing business continues to drop. The cost of handling money continues to drop. And eventually, you know, a lot of things are just going to be handled, uh, you know, electronically. And again, that will make banks much more efficient. The money will flow a lot easier. You're going to have less branches. Uh, that's a trend that's occurring. And certainly from when you merge two companies together, which will be continue to be a big theme, you, it's going to be easier to merge companies together and easier to eliminate costs. So, um, you know, for the most part, uh, the, you know, that's an important trend. Um, geography in this country has always been very, very important. So mm -hmm. many different drivers uh, in different markets. I've, I've liked the Southeast a great deal simply because of the Panama Canal driving a lot of volume through the ports. Uh, the labor laws are favorable. Um, the tax laws are favorable. That's a really big driver of, of, of people today. If you look at states with huge inflows, you've got places like Texas. You've got places like uh, Tennessee and places like Florida. And so you've got a lot of growth going on in those markets as well. People want to be in those markets. And, and, and banks that are not in those markets want to buy in those markets. Well, uh, to that, you know, uh, we had you on the show a few months ago and you brought us uh, the name of BNC Bank Corp, one that we hadn't, you know, I hadn't made any attention to. Uh, it instantly got, it looked like an attractive investment to you, but it instantly got acquired pretty much right after we talked about it. Stock jumped about 20%. Uh, again, regional bank with the same kind of theme you're talking about here. So I'm curious about your holding of, uh, of another regional bank kind of in the same area. You've got uh, Atlantic Coast Financial, ticker ACFC, a small bank, uh, $150 million market cap or so. But I'm curious what you see in that Jacksonville, Florida-based bank. Well, um, you know, one of the reasons we owned it was, was simply the footprint. We bought it in an attractive valuation. Um, there was a deal announced to buy it um, last Friday. Um, and the company that bought it, Ameris Bank, um, is just under $10 billion in size. They're going to have some pretty good cost cuts, some pretty good revenue synergies. And, um, you know, I think the growth rate of, of that bank isn't well appreciated. So we expect to remain shareholders. I think it's a very attractive uh, deal for uh, Ameris shareholders, a very attractive deal for um, the ACFC shareholders. And but I guess, I guess what I'm curious yeah. about is what you saw in their business sure. that looked so attractive. Obviously, well, any kind yeah. of merger is going to take out costs. Yeah, well, I mean, really, you know, Jacksonville, Florida has been a really great growth market. Um, it's actually, I think, the largest landmass city in, in this country. 
and a uh, tremendous amount of economic activity going on down there um, just across the, uh, the border from Georgia. So, you know, tax laws are favorable, a lot of in-migration. A lot of big companies have outsourced uh, operational duties to that market. So, um, you know, any footprint in that market has, has really done well. Uh, and we certainly like owning banks in Florida. Uh, we love Southern Florida as well. I mean, a lot of our, our holdings have, have done some deals down there. Companies like a home bank is now 58% in Florida. Iberia Bank is now 40% in Florida. And the other thing that Florida has going for it is, is hurricanes is, have always led to deposit inflows post-hurricane and then rebuild after that. So you have all the other things going for it, all the in-migration and the lower taxes, but you've got a lot of building activity that's going to go on in that state as well. And Jacksonville certainly uh, has, has seen some hurricane damage. So hurricanes are good for the banking business. <laughs> well, uh, over time, yes, they are. In short term, there's there's some losses, some personal issues, but yeah. Um, yeah, I mean, they tend not to be the negative people think they are when something bad happens. They tend to actually, you know, work out very well for growth uh, short term afterwards. Anton, got about 30 seconds left here. Among the big banks, what do you like? Uh, among the big banks, I still like Bank of America. They're the most sensitive to rising interest rates. I'm really impressed with the technology they've invested. They spend over $10 billion a year in it, mm. and uh, they've, they certainly have some gee whiz stuff coming. So, uh, you know, I'm really uh, happy with the performance of that bank as well as what I expect in the future. And we're looking at a stock that's up about 21% this year, uh, and not to mention also the dividend. Anton, we love when you come in. Thank <laughs> you. Always a pleasure. Anton Schutz, uh, the company is called Menden Capital Advisors. Uh, they've got a couple of uh, mutual funds out there, Menden Financial yeah. Services Fund. Among them, it's uh, up uh, 9% year to date. So, nice move there as well. Whenever you go shopping to buy a dress that's new. Time to talk a little bit about shopping because the unofficial official start to the holiday shopping season, yep, just around the corner. In fact, Black Friday just coming a little bit later on this week. Let's talk about what to expect. Marissa Tarleton is back with us, retail analyst and chief marketing officer at Retail Me Not, based in Austin, Texas, back in our Bloomberg 1130 studio in New York City. Welcome back. Thank you. Just before the shopping gets underway here in New York City, gets a little crazy. I'm getting excited. <laughs> How excited are you in terms of the optimism we might see out of shoppers this holiday shopping season? So the data that we're looking at says that consumers will spend 50% more this period of time versus last year. So in particular, this weekend. That's a lot. 50% more. So that's on average about $750 per family, per person. So Wait, and that, that's spending of $750 or an increase of $750? That's a total spending level. So that's up from about $500 last year. That's a huge yes. jump. It's a significant jump. And they're changing what they're buying, too. So it's not necessarily just toys. Can, it's travel. I want to talk about that. But can I ask you, do you know, is it everybody's going to be shopping more? All, all along the scale, the income scale, if you will? It, from what we've seen, optimism is there across the board, and we're seeing all categories of consumers more um, optimistic and wanting to spend more this holiday season, not only on themselves, but on their friends and their families. Wow. Self-gifting uh, is big, in particular this year. People are actually investing money year. in themselves. I mean yeah. This year, <laughs> well, it's up. So, 50% of millennials said they're going to spend money on themselves, but over 100 bucks on themselves over the holiday period of time. So, self-gifting is in. What do we know about the way people are shopping? You know, I think we've seen discounting so consistently year after year that I wonder how much people wait for. Black Friday, they wait for Cyber Monday, they wait for those deals to show up and they won't buy otherwise. It's interesting you ask. The, the Retail Me Not data said that 
most consumers started shopping in October. And they actually, actually not only started mm-hmm. looking, but they started buying in October. But the latest data we for have- For the holidays. For the holidays, exactly. But the latest data we have says that almost, almost 80% have not finished their list. They're not even halfway through. So they are waiting. And if you look at retailer promotions, retailers in general have been a little bit less- um, aggressive in their promos this week so far. Last year, Black Friday started at least a week in advance. You I knew agree the with deals. You. Yeah. This week, I haven't seen it yet. So that leads me to believe that Friday morning is worth your time to get up and look around because I'm expecting about a 20% increase in discounts and promos on Black Friday through the weekend. We had a story on the Bloomberg, or we do have a story on the Bloomberg today. It says traditional retailers um, may be able to breathe a sigh of relief this upcoming weekend. And what they're saying is there's a Deloitte survey out there saying only 47% of U.S. consumers plan to shop online during this year's Black Friday compared with 55% last year. More than two-thirds plan to visit brick-and-mortar stores. What do you see? So the store is alive and well, and how retail me not um, Macy's partners. might beg to differ. Well, if you... JCPenney <laughs> might beg to differ, or some others. Right. They, I mean, c- consumers are fascinating. They're using their mobile phone to make decisions, but still 9 out of 10 want to go into a store and touch and feel. And that's very much true for clothing, shoes, accessories. Now, if you look at electronics and some of those other categories, cares, and even right? travel, you, that's all going to be online. Um, but you do see Black Friday becoming more of an online and an in-store holiday, but the in-store is still going to win this weekend. Um, that's interesting. I mean, obviously, it's, it's make or break for, for all the you know brick-and-mortar retailers, but for some, it's going to be break. I mean, it's going to be, you know, they're already coming into this really uh, limping along. Yeah, it's it's definitely competitive, and you see that in mall, um, like major department stores in particular, yeah. looking for ways to differentiate. One of the things I've seen is um, using the store to your advantage, right? So in order to be competitive with some of the players like Amazon, convenience and savings are number one, but having an in-store experience that's really unique that makes you want to go in is I also amazing. Keep- hearing that. What does that mean, an in-store experience? Is it is it a case of I, I went into a pop-up store with my daughter downtown, and it was really kind of cool. They had a little seating, and it was, is that what Supreme? we're talking Supreme? Were you about? in Supreme? Were you getting skate, <laughs> skate gear? No, we weren't getting skate gear. This was a total, like, girls' clothes, all that stuff, and I can't remember who it was. But it was, you know, something special that got you in the store, and right? And she was like, Mom, you got to come see this. I mean, it's amazing. I've seen anything from live music to, obviously, Meet Santa to, we'll help you do your own makeup and help you kind of get to know what your fashion best practices are. I mean, there's amazing tricks. But there's also very simple things like buy online, pick up in store that just kind of lean into that convenience factor. Like, Mm. I haven't figured out my shopping, but I need it all this afternoon. How can I do it in five minutes on my phone, but then find a solution where I can pick it up quickly? Corey, are you going to spend 50% more? Yeah, probably, actually. Yeah. Well, it's, thank e- you. it's easy to do. Things, the, the, the list has grew a lot this year. <laughs> but I think I'm just nicer than I used to be. That's part of it. I, you know, it is true. that uh, I guess the you know experience as a shopping uh, uh, lure it probably goes all the way back to Santa. Yeah, absolutely. Think about it. It's still the number one. And now it's the trains around the tree and, you know, a variety of different things at the malls. But I think malls are being very creative to entice consumers to come in with unique experiences. And that's what the, the holidays are about to some extent is that family time. 50% more. <laughs> okay. Marissa Charlton, thank you for coming back. Thank you. Fun to of course, talk the only way you. I could afford that is by going to Retail Me Not and <laughs> getting all those coupons out there and ordering online. Please so. do. We would appreciate it. Retail Analyst, Chief Marketing Officer at Retail Me Not, based in Austin, Texas, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio on this lovely Monday afternoon. I hope you with me. I hope you with me when it's over. So he says, 
Because the number one question he gets from his clients, performance has been great, but how long can it last? We've heard this before. Michael Hans is Managing Director, Chief Investment Officer at Clearfield Financial Advisors, uh, based in Terrytown, New York, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio uh, here in New York City. Nice to have you here with us. Happy to be here. Talk to me a little bit about, um, you say this is the question you get. Everybody wants to know how much longer, how much longer. I think it the stage that we're in in the economic recovery, if you look at predominantly the U.S. equity market, this has been going on for quite some time. Valuations are getting a bit more overheated. And our answer to clients isn't necessarily to expect the rally in U.S. equity markets to continue to be the driving force behind portfolio performance. You should start looking and paying attention to the international markets, where if you're up 17% in the S&P 500 right. this year for the first time in really the last three, four years, you're getting better performance out of the international markets. And emerging markets right now are up over 30%. Right. There's more room for play if you think about, you know, valuation concerns and things like that. I mean, that's, you know, we've heard a lot of people come on and say, look at Europe, like there's more opportunities, the emerging markets that can continue as well. The purchasing managers indices and the surveys are coming in much stronger across Europe than you even see in the U.S. And the Although, if you backed out of the U.S., because we've been hearing that for at least the last 12 months, the U.S. did fairly well this year. It was a very <laughs> strong year. Again, you're better if you're up in capitalization as opposed to small cap. Yeah. But we're not saying ignore the U.S. because we clearly have a bias as U.S.-based investors. But the diversification benefits of international is finally something that's rewarding investors. And the trajectory at this point in time seems a little bit more clear, certainly than in years past. So, what would uh, you, you talk about the valuations being stretched in the U.S. specifically? What are you referring to? Because this is a this is a point of debate. It is because you can clearly point if you're looking at Fed-based models, you can see cheap uh, equity valuations simply because it's predicated on where global rates are. If you look at indices uh, or almost valuation metrics like the CAPE uh, index or even forward or trailing PEs, it's a bit more stretched. Again, you're above your historical averages. Not not egregiously so, but if you go overseas, you're seeing probably a two-point benefit uh, by being invested in Europe. And again, the, the data is noisy around Japan, but you're clearly seeing better valuations there. If you go and look at the CAPE ratios of the U.S. and compare it to the emerging markets, for example, you're a little over 30 on a long-term CAPE, uh, the cyclically adjusted ratio. You're about half that in emerging markets. So we feel the pendulum swung pretty far towards U.S. equities. And ultimately, over the balance of the cycle in the intermediate term, you will likely see, again, a better contribution from your international exposure. Uh, It's interesting. Um, It doesn't bother you, though, that we've had such a continuous move up since the crisis and that it's been, you know, some would say, well, it's, you know, been going on and we've got to see some kind of significant correction. That doesn't bother you. In the near term, it, it, it's not so much going back to 2009, it's even just this year. Yeah. Uh, it's been a very shallow pullback a couple of times, and the, and the dip has always been bought. And that's Why something is that? You have what I would characterize as an environment is a, a handoff and transition from a liquidity-induced rally from mm-hmm. the global central bankers towards an earnings and macro data-driven rally. And the, the last couple of quarters, we've really seen a dramatic pickup in corporate earnings and activity. And when you look at most of this cycle, a good portion of returns have been generated by multiple expansion, where investors are paying up for the same level of earnings. This year, the overwhelming majority of performance for broader equity markets, especially in the U.S., has been driven by, by corporate earnings. Right? So that's really been what's fundamentals. Uh, fundamentals to a large degree. However, mm-hmm. again, we're still awash in liquidity. Yeah. Right? It, even though the Fed has curtailed 
right, and, and has been a little bit more restrictive, you still have global central banks amassing fixed income. So, you know, the, the finding your way through these investments is tricky because there's just so much to offer and so many markets to look into. So many investors are liking ETFs these days. Do emerging market ETFs start to look uh, make sense for you? They do, and they have for some time. I, I would tell you, we, we've never really abandoned the asset class simply because, it, again, building diversified portfolios will never work in your favor if you're o overly focused on one specific region at any point in time. Uh, so, uh, while in years past we may have been neutral to slightly underweight emerging markets, we, we have been increasing that allocation over time. And ultimately, the areas that we're shifting in our portfolios right now, as, as we look to rebalance, we're thinking tactically so that where we take gains, we're, uh, again, mindful of where valuations ultimately are in other aspects of the portfolio. But the one clear point that we're, we're trying to stress with our clients has been because this market has moved uh, quite a bit, we also have credit allocations that are overvalued to a larger degree, we believe, than looking at just the equity markets. So if uh, you look at high-yield credit spreads, as they had broken below 400 basis points in excess of treasuries, you know, historically you're pushing 600 basis points. We just felt uh, over the summer months that we started really scaling out of our credit, predominantly U.S. Uh, high yield, you just weren't being compensated for the risks associated with those markets. We're talking with Michael Hands, a Managing Director, Chief Investment Officer at uh Clearfield uh, Financial Advisors. Is there any part of the corporate credit market in particular, industry-wise, that you kind of have your eye on, whether it's retail, whether it's, I mean, for a while it was energy. I'm just curious. Energy was the challenge yeah. in late 15, early 16. And since then, the indices have evolved. And more recently, you're seeing hiccups out of telecom, which is the largest sector right now. So telecom is north of 20% of the high-yield indices. You then have energy and other aspects of uh, consumer discretionary. And we're focused on, you know, it's interesting you mentioned ETFs. ETFs are a challenge right now when there's no you know, discerning buyer, ultimately. Mm -hmm. And capital is is really being misallocated. Kind of an all-in uh, thing. All-in. Uh, it, it's a macro trade. It's on. It's off. It's used to hedge other aspects of a portfolio. So right now, the challenge is potentially liquidity, if it does come out. And you see just little hiccups over a short amount of time can get exacerbated. You mentioned telecom. We have a story on the Bloomberg today. It says some of the biggest landline phone providers in the U.S., from Connecticut to Arizona, running headlong into a debt crisis after borrowing heavily to add more territory than failing uh, to escape the industry's decline. They're looking at companies like CenturyLink, Frontier Communications, Windstream Holdings, so uh, certainly on our radar as well. Michael, thank you. My pleasure. Pleasure to have you here, Michael Hands, Managing Director, Chief Investment Officer at uh, Clearfield Financial Advisors, based in Terrytown, New York, in our Bloomberg 1130 studio on this Monday afternoon. Carol Masser, Corey Johnson, we are Bloomberg Radio. Move around. Motion creates emotion. I feel the earth move under my you move like they do. I've never seen anyone move that fast. All right, people, let's move like we've got a purpose. Something's called movers and shakers. They cost a little more, but that name cracked me up. Bloomberg Markets, Movers and Shakers, with Carol Masser and Corey Johnson on Bloomberg Radio. It's time for a look at some of the movers and shakers, winners and losers, on this Monday afternoon. Carol Masser along with Corey Johnson. Let's kick it off 
With the S&P 500, 288 names in the index higher today, 215 lower, three unchanged. Number two decliner in the S&P, ticker is CAH, Cardinal Health, down 4.4% to $55 a share. They're down about 24% so far in 2017. A couple things going on. First of all, Morgan Stanley analyst uh, Ricky Goldwasser downgraded the recommendation on Cardinal Health to underweight from equal weight, lowered the target price to 51 from 70 $72 a share, implying 11% decrease from the last regular trade. Target is 26% below the consensus average of $69 a share and at the low end of forecasts ranging from 51 to 81 according to analysts that we track here at Bloomberg. Keep in mind, investors who follow Goldwasser's recommendation missed the negative 18% return on the shares in the year previously. One other thing on Cardinal Health, Corey, drug distributors, uh, Cardinal Health among them, most at risk from the recurrent theme of an Amazon entry into the healthcare market. This is according to Morgan Stanley analysts who put out a note. Brian Nowak uh, put out a note and said Cardinal Health is the most exposed to Amazon disruption for its medical supply distribution unit uh, and is cutting her rating to underweight versus equal weight and price target to 51 from $72 a share. As I mentioned, the stock closed at 55 today. So uh, today we saw shares of Insight Pharmaceutical, one of the biggest uh, losers, uh, in fact, the biggest loser in the S&P 500. Shares of Insight were down 6% on the day to close at 98.95. Why? Well, since we're talking about biotech, Insight being a biotech company, when uh, Merck catches a cold, Insight catches a fever. Merck shares were down yes. about 3%, half that, uh, after Roche announced that a study of a new drug uh, with a vaccine and chemotherapy, uh, uh, this drug called a Tecentric, when used with Avastin chemotherapy, met its primary end targets for patients with non-small cell lung cancer. And that might actually you know, impact the sales of a competing drug from Merck. Uh, and that bad news for Merck, as I said, could be bad news for Insight, since uh, Insight uh, has a deal um, uh, with uh, AstraZeneca. And so AstraZeneca and Merck and others uh, were down today with the notion that this, is, this other drug might be helping Merck. Delphi, your number one gainer in the S&P 500 today. Stock's up 3.5% to 102.14 a share. It is bum, ba, da, ba, up 52% so far in 2017. What went on? Well, Delphi Automotive upgraded to buy from neutral at Bank of America Merrill Lynch. Analyst John Murphy says the accelerated timeline for the spinoff could be an indication of a more imminent bin for either of the companies. So saying the upgrade largely based on the upside risk of a takeout when the two businesses become disentangled, especially as a number of suppliers have refocused acquisition efforts on businesses levered to industry megatrends such as autonomous, electric, connected, and shared mobility. And uh, B of A's uh, new sum of the parts analysis, suggesting a total combined equity value of roughly $32 billion, or about $120 share for Delphi stock. They raised the price target to 120 from 110 and the stock's at 102 and change here at the close, Corey. Dollar Tree up a little bit today. Uh, stock was $2.50, close at $97.11, uh, perhaps because uh, their, their uh, payout to uh, Dollar Express became clear at the end of last week that the, they wouldn't have to pay $500 million uh, to uh, Dollar Express, and that might actually be helping this company. There was uh, some litigation there uh, and some fraud claims, but uh, uh, the, those fraud claims would be, be contractually barred in that case. And as a result, uh, Dollar Tree may prevail uh, on its other breach of contract claims, but won't have to pay the $500 million uh, either way over the uh, 2015 purchase of 330 stores. All right, let's get to the volatility index report and the VIX. Check it out in the Friday, Friday session. Whoa, I'm jumping the gun there. In the Monday session, the VIX down 6.5%, closing at 10.70, Corey. 
Uh, and I'm going to give you a stock of the day. You ready? Yep, I'm ready. Ticker is HPE. HPE, Hewlett Packard, Packard Enterprises. Enterprise. Uh, and that's the uh, enterprise security data uh, business, uh, data testing cloud business, the part that uh, Meg Whitman uh, runs as CEO when Hewlett Packard split a few years ago. And uh, they're reporting earnings tomorrow. And a lot of eyes in the company. Stock was up today about 3% in anticipation that the earnings might be good, although this company has had uh, great struggles, uh, has been has seen uh, big declines in revenues every year since the split. Uh, the expectation is for tomorrow uh, yet another big decline in revenues. Uh, nonetheless, there's a belief that maybe their, the focus on cost cutting uh, and uh, share repurchases might help this company uh, right this ship. And, and with the estimates being so weak, maybe they'll be able to beat the estimates. That's the, the bet today. But again, it's still focused on restructuring, still focusing on restructuring charges, still trying to figure out what this company is going to be when it grows up. Uh, but that had the stock up, uh, expectation of big results tomorrow, uh, gave the, had the stock up 3% today. Yeah, if you take a look at that stock chart, too, over the last six months, I mean, you've had to have a pretty strong stomach because it's been all over the map, and we've seen some big moves, big drops, big gains um, as uh, investors react to various news uh, on that uh, company. And we should point out that uh, we'll be covering those earnings from Hewlett Packard Enterprise out after the closing bell tomorrow. So we'll bring On average, down. The stock jumps about, moves about 4% after earnings are announced. So we'll, we might expect yeah. another big move tomorrow, regardless, up or down. Big deal. All right. As you mentioned, though, your stock to watch, and we'll break down those earnings tomorrow. Just a reminder, everybody, of how we closed on this Monday afternoon. Uh, interesting holiday week, of course. No trading on Thursday for the Thanksgiving Day holiday in a shortened session come Friday. But here we are on Monday. A lot of deal news. Uh, watching some developments over in Germany. And we had the Dow Jones Industrial Average up 72 points, up three-tenths of a percent. S&P just a, a slight gain, up three points, up one-tenth of one percent, closing at 25.82. NASDAQ at the close, 67.90. It's a gain of about eight points, up one-tenth of one percent. Thanks for listening to Coast to Coast. You can subscribe to this podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 o'clock Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. And follow us on Twitter. She's at Carol Masser, and I'm at Corey TV.